You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Our journey through Joshua ends today, and we're wrapping it up. It's been an amazing book uh, to study together and this sliver of history of God's dealing with his people, and we have learned so much through our teaching on Sundays and also our um, discussions in our life groups and we'll spend the next few weeks in kind of an off, uh, out of series, and then Advent. I know, it's weird. It's 90 degrees today. Um, but today we wrap up our teaching, and I'm going to start out with a summary. I don't usually do this, but I'll start out with a summary of where we're headed. I'm going to give you the cookies here right up front. When we feel hopeless, God's power shines brightest. Therefore, do not be afraid, but trust in him and be courageous. I want you to look for these themes as we read our passage today and wrap up our series. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 really slowly. Uh, We'll read through 15, verse 15, but 1 through 5 I'm going to read slowly. Um, You'll see why, not only because there's a lot of names and locations that are really hard to pronounce, um, but because it's meant to build tension. Our passage is meant to impress upon us a tense situation where... God's people are hopeless, and he remains strong, and I want it to do its job for us today. And so let's read in Joshua chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphath Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all of their troops, a great horde in the number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I'll give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misraphath Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him, He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all that were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. 
And all the spoil these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This is God's word. When we feel hopeless, God's power shines greatest. Therefore, do not be afraid and trust in him and be courageous. That's going to form a structure of our teaching this morning. These three points, starting with this first phrase, when we feel hopeless. Now, I considered ways to just bypass these really difficult pronouncing names of kings and cities and different ethnic groups. I could have easily just given a brief introduction to where we were in this passage and summarized verses one through five by truncating verse five and just saying this, a bunch of kings joined forces against Israel. But it doesn't have the same punch, does it? Consider how much space and ink is given to talk about the numbers and the advantages that are given to God's opponents. Think about these first five verses. Think about how we're told the names of these kings, how we're told where they are from, how we are identified by their location, their ethnic group. They, we are descri- they describe to us the kinds of weaponry they have and the advantages that are at their disposal. Massive numbers, as many as the sands on the seashore, are the opponents of God's people. They have chariots and they have horses. First mention of horses, actually, in Joshua. Why talk about this stuff? I mean, our Bible is, is thick enough, right? Why add just an extra, extra detail in here? And it's precisely in this reading of this passage in such detail that we are meant to feel overwhelmed by Israel's opponent. We are meant to feel overwhelmed. We are meant to feel this emphasis that Israel is in this increasingly hopeless situation. After every battle, there is now not a lesser battle, but a more oppressive and hopeless situation that they face. Once again, there's a motive to why all the names and locations are included. First is to build credibility because these are real places and real kings, and this is real history that really happened. And two, to oppress upon the reader and to Israel with resources that are available to God's opponents. The enemies of God have the best that the world has to offer. They have the absolute best resources that the world has to offer. Numbers, technology, horses, advanced weaponry, chariots, and these present absolutely no threat to God's ability to do what he said he was going to do. He is about to do something incredible. And we are meant to feel this impression of the great opposition that is against God and his people. I'm going to say something I know you're not going to like. That's my privilege, I think. Here it is. God's people are often driven to despair in their soul and in their troubled circumstances so that God can do his best work in our life. God's people are often driven to places of great despair on purpose 
by God's loving hand so that he can do his best work. We really don't like that. But just realize the pattern of Scripture. Realize the pattern of Scripture, how God deals with his people. If you have read your Bible much at all, if you've read it just a little bit, you can predict what's going to happen when you encounter huge opposition to God's people. I mean, if the story starts out like this, there was once a woman unable to have children. You know she's getting pregnant, right? (laughs) If his story starts out, there was once a man whose daughter was deathly ill. You know she's getting better. If it starts out, there was once a man paralyzed from birth. He's about to walk. I just know it. He's about to walk. This pattern is over and over and over again through Scripture. We are introduced not just to information, but we are meant to be emotionally impacted by the severity of people's hopelessness so that when God actually shows up and rescues them, it is so marvelous. It is so beautiful. His might and power shine so bright. When we encounter stories of hopelessness in the Bible, we are meant to say, oh, I've heard this story before. And if God shows up, nothing is going to get in his way. We're meant to feel that as we read his stories. God seems to know something about emptiness, about brokenness, about weakness that we do not know. Because it's always in these moments he does his best work. He doesn't say to his people, you finally got to a place where I can use you in your strength and in your character and in your uh, accumulations of wealth and accomplishments in your life. No, they are driven to nothing and to pure weakness and their back is up against the wall and he says, you're finally at a place where I can do my best work. God creates out of nothing. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And here we see Israel surrounded. Like it's like from a it's like from the Lord of the Rings or something and seeing the the hordes of the orcs and all of the armies uh castle and storming the walls and destroying a city we're meant to not even be able to count them. They are so many where we can't even distinguish individual soldiers. It is just a mass, an ocean of enemy and a coalition of nations all around Israel coming together and say, let's destroy them. God creates out of nothing. He speaks into creation and appears. He comes light into darkness and it becomes light. He breathes air into lungs and they come alive. And so if you have nothing, you are a very good candidate for God's power to shine on you. If you realize that you are broken, if you realize that your back is up against the wall, then you are a very good candidate for God to do amazing work. And that's, that's exactly what's about to happen. It's exactly what is about to happen. When we are hopeless, we ought to expect God to be present there with us. These are the people he runs to in Scripture. These are the people that he, he pays attention to. It's not the prideful. It's not the boastful. It's, it's not those who have it all together by worldly standards. 
the one that God is always moving towards and intervening. It's the people who are broken and the bottom of their life has fallen out. And they say, well, this is impossible for us. But when we are hopeless, and here's the second part of the phrase, when we are hopeless, God's power shines brightest. When we are hopeless, God's power shines brightest. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to God's power. No barrier whatsoever. He loses no sleep over our insufficiencies, loses no sleep over our weaknesses. Here is where God doubles down in order to show the greatness of his power in the face of great hopelessness. After hearing the greatness of the opposition, God says this to Joshua in verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not them for tomorrow at this time I'll give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. What what a weird war strategy. I bet you I I bet you thought that God would say, you know, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I'll give you I'll give them over to you. And guess what? They got some great resources that you're gonna use for war. They've got horses, they've got chariots capture the people, steal the horses, ride off in the chariots, use them for yourself. I bet the army of Israel would have loved some chariots and loved some horses, but God says, you're not going to need any of them. You're not going to use them. You're actually going to destroy them. It reminds us of Psalm 20, verse 6 through 8, where David says this, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. You see, the greater opposition in your life and the greater feeling of hopelessness and despair, the greater understanding you will have of God's strong and mighty hand. We understand this. We understand this in different areas of our life. We understand it in sports. If you want to be the best, you have to beat the best, right? If you, it, the, world, you know, the World Series uh, or the World Baseball Classic held every year, it's an international baseball tournament of the best players in the world in their, in their countries. And this past year, it was Japan and USA in the final game, the championship game. It was the top of the ninth inning. Japan and the USA arguably the best pitcher in baseball, Shohei Otani, pitching for Japan, and the best hitter in baseball, Mike Trout, at the plate. And it all comes down to this. It is the best against the best. Mike Trout gets struck out by Shohei Otani. Japan wins, and the celebration is so big. It rocks the baseball world. It is so important. Why? Because the best goes against the best, and it's like, here is why we play. Here is what we want to see. This means something right here. Who is going to be stronger and win? And the kind of celebration that Japan had was so big because the Team USA and Mike Trout all coming down to that was the best scenario. Everybody wants to be in that situation because you know you're only as good as your strongest opponent that you beat. There is no one who outpowers the mighty plans of God and he wants to make that point abundantly clear for his people. He wants to make that clear for you. And so God pads the opposition. 
He pads the opposition. He raises the stakes on purpose. He allows them to become as numerous as they are so that the reality of God's strong and loving hand that guides us is not just a nice metaphor. We don't have to just say God's hand is strong and mighty for us and he will protect us. We don't have to just, it's not an empty metaphor. We don't have to just believe that and take his word for it. He shows us over and over and over again. He says, give me the world's best. I mean, even exaggerate it. Give me, give me a hundred times you know, worse than you can imagine. Give me unlikely situations. He overcomes it all. God does not allow harm into our life because he's negligent, but he allows it in order for his strength to build faith in us as he overcomes the goals. This is what God does over and over and over again. We see it clearly throughout scripture. We see it clearly at the cross. We see it at the cross of Jesus. The one that David here, King David in Psalm 20 is alluding to. Of course, there's a short-term reference here. David is talking of himself and he's pleading with God and assuring us that God will protect him. God will take care of him. God will save him. God's anointed king over Israel. But it foreshadows that God will save his anointed one, the Messiah, the one who has come, the one who is chosen to rescue God's people, Jesus Christ, at the cross. God will save his anointed one. They nailed Jesus to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, and hung on the cross, he, he cried out. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Tears likely rolled down Jesus' cheek. The full force of God's anger and judgment and hatred of sin was about to be fully poured on Jesus on the cross, his own son, and instead of, instead of on his own people. It was the only way that God could destroy sin. It's the only way that he could satisfy his justice for our transgressions. It's the only way that he could spare his children from being destroyed. And then Jesus shouted out, it is finished, and then he died. And they buried Jesus in a tomb. And, and because of that, you know what Jesus' enemies thought? That's the end of him. That's the end of Jesus. Jesus' friends likely thought this as well. His friends were very sad. They went into hiding for fear of their life. They would never see their best friend ever again. How could this happen? How could God's promised rescuer die? It was not supposed to end like this. It was supposed to end in, in triumph and victory and, and a silencing of our enemies. This was not turning out to be the great victory that we all wanted. But God knew what he was doing. He was padding the opposition. He was going face to face with our greatest enemy, sin and death itself. And God was not done. And he was saying there is nothing in this world that can, that can hinder his plans for us to rescue us. Not even death itself. No earthly warriors, no earthly armies or nations no kind of suffering, whether it's political or financial or emotional. And three days later, just before the sun was about to rise, an angel would show up to Jesus' friends as they were weeping outside of his tomb. And, they, and he would say, do not be afraid. Jesus is alive. 
don't be afraid. The same utterance of God to his people as their backs are against the wall and they feel hopeless. God is showing them that this is where his strength is going to shine. And he asks us to trust in him. That he's doing his work, that he's working behind the scenes. I must have, I imagine that there must have been a temptation to use these chariots for their purposes, to, to use and capture these horses, but God removed these great assets from their use. He says, I don't want you to depend on these horses. I don't want you to depend on these chariots. You only need me. And even when David was in battle, he tells us in several different occasions that when he would go to battle, he would destroy all the horses and all the chariots, except a hundred, because he could use a hundred, and he would take the hundred horses and the hundred chariots He would take what his armies could use, but he would disable his enemy because he even knew these are good things. These are good things to use and we can use these. He was even tempted. He was even in, in need of these resources and felt that it's hard to trust in God. And so just have a plan B in case he doesn't show up. But he pleads with God. He says like, I don't want to trust in chariots. I don't want to trust in horses. I want to trust in you because in you is my salvation. And God says, get rid of them all. Get rid of every single one of them. You don't need them. You only need me. Hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. Hamstring, of course, is that large tendon going from the back of the knee to the glute. And God says, I want you to to take a sword and I want you to cut that tendon in every one of the horses. Those horses are not moving. They're not walking. They're useless. I want you to burn the chariots. I want you to render them completely useless. What are we supposed to do with all this information? Well, when we feel hopeless, God's power shines brightest. Therefore, do not be afraid, but trust in the Lord and be courageous. It's our final thing. Therefore, do not be afraid, but trust in the Lord and be courageous. This is the, this is the story of Joshua this is the, we see at the end here of final battle. The rest of the book is, we're going to see this allotment and, and, and reward that is given to God's people and they inhabit the promised land and they settle in place. And this is the final battle, the big battle that we see. And God is saying, when you feel hopeless, my power is going to shine greatest. And this has been the theme. So what do we do? We, we trust in him. We are not afraid. We are courageous. You know, we've taught through these war stories for 14 weeks now uh, through Joshua, and we've seen the courage of Joshua. We've seen the, um, how God has led his people through numerous obstacles, how they have at times failed God and been faithless, and how they have not obeyed his word, how they, God has lovingly disciplined them and restored them in faith, and how they have how he's given them chance after chance after chance and he is helping grow their faith and after all the wars are over, the land is allotted to different tribes of Israel and they settle in the land and then they all live happily ever after, right? Absolutely not. They're done, right? The, the, The work has been done. God has given them the reward of the land that he promised so they get to now rest and be done. no. Hardly. 
They are not on an eternal vacation from their problems, not quite. And there is a tendency to think like this, that true faith, that true trusting in God is just, and true surrender to God's will is just to live by this famous motto, just let go and let God. Let God fight your battles. Just rest back. You're on an eternal vacation. Jesus died for you and loves you and gave his life for you. And so just, just let God just do his work in your life and just enjoy it. Well, when God tells Joshua that everything God has commanded will come to pass, letting go is far from what Joshua does. Letting go is far from what you and I are called to do when our faith is strengthened, when we're called to be courageous. Over and over and over again, you'll see this phrase in chapter 11. It sounds something like this, just as God commanded, just as God said, just as the Lord promised, exactly as God said. Over and over and over again, we see it five, six times in this passage. God does exactly what he says he will do, and there's no opposition too strong for him. He will never be hamstrung He will never be disabled. His plans will never go up in flames. And that doesn't mean we say, okay, God, you got this in your hands. I'm just going to sit back and just wait for it to happen. But we move forward in trust and courage, and we act in faith. Trusting God and being courageous is not a technique we need to master. It's not a formula of carefully executed activities. It is a pouring out of our soul to God for help as we walk the path that he has marked out for us. He says, God, you have called me to obedience. You've called me to holiness. You've called me to follow you. And that doesn't mean we are to let go. It means I can be courageous in what you are going to do. Of course, there's 13, 14 more chapters in Joshua that we're not going to spend time reading. I encourage you to do that. My guess is you'll probably stop at chapter 15. (laughs) But maybe keep going, and towards the end you'll see Joshua 24. And this gives us a glimpse into like life after all the work has been done and they've settled into the land and things are great. And it kind of shows us, well, what does faith look like for us? What does it look like to trust God today? Even knowing, okay, I feel hopeless, but God's, power is brightest in my struggle, and he is good. He's going to take care of me. What do I do now? And Joshua 24, 14 to 18 reads this way at the end of the book. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in the sight of and in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed and the lord drove out before us all the peoples the amorites who lived in the land therefore we also will serve the lord for he is our god 
Joshua is saying and God's people are affirming, no, this is not a to just rest because of everything that God did in our hopelessness and he parted the waters of the Red Sea and he parted the waters of the Jordan and we passed through the land and defeated all of our enemies and we were given this great reward just as God said would happen. This is not a time now to say, thank you, God, I'm gonna take a break. Now is the time to serve him with our whole life. To walk in courage, knowing that he has secured for us his love and faithfulness and to not be afraid of the future. And so we serve the Lord, for he is our God. We can serve the gods of our culture. We can serve the idols in our heart. Or we can serve the God who's made himself known to us through his mighty works and invites us into his endless love. And we say, well, that's my life. So when I feel hopeless, I see his power shine brightest and I won't be afraid no matter what comes my way. What might you remember from Joshua? Hopefully a lot. I hope you remember that when we will experience hopelessness in our life, experience struggle, sometimes great struggle, I hope you remember that God is working in ways that you cannot always see that God will always bring salvation to his people and what he asks of us is to courageously trust in him and he will never fail. Be strong and courageous knowing that God works in you. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.